This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised. In the last episode, we talked about the Stocks family. Today, we will give you a brief history of the Walls family and take a deep dive into the monster that is Jack Walls. Before we get started, I wanted to correct a statement from the last episode. Originally, we said Jack's wife was Karen Knox's sister. Pam Walls, Jack's wife, was actually Charlie Knox's sister and Karen's sister-in-law. So before Pam married Jack, she was Pam Knox. So two of the people that we're going to be hearing from in this episode are Charles Peckett and Betty Dickey. Starting with Charles Peckett, he was the former chief of police for Lone Oak County and is currently a cold case investigator for the North Little Rock Police Department. We were able to interview him at the police station, and he couldn't have been more accommodating. He showed up there on a Saturday, you know, weekend hours, nobody was there, and just had a little space set up for us to interview him. And It was so nice because you could tell that he wanted to do this interview. Like, he was ready to go. He was prepared. And and you can tell that it's something that he's been really carrying around for years. Yeah, exactly. I feel like... A lot of times you always hear like, oh, this is the case that stuck with me. And I really feel like this is this is one of those cases for for Peckett. Absolutely. My name is Charles Peckett. I've worked every about every unit that there is. I've worked undercover narcotics. I've worked uh, patrol division, worked investigations for a good number of years. During the time of, of uh, work and I was going to college, I obtained my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. I've gone to the FBI Academy and graduated from there. That was in 94, I think is when I went to the FBI Academy. That was uh, 1997. I left North Little Rock and uh, went to Lono to become the police chief there. I thought that would be an easy job. Uh, being a small community and a uh, small police department, I thought that it would be a pretty easy job. Uh, it just Within just a few days, it turned into a disaster. <laughs> what did I expect? Nice, quiet town is what I expected. Like I said, it quickly turned into something more than that with the Walls investigation. And... Uh, and the he stocks case, uh, it turned into something pretty quick. And Betty as well. She was welcoming to us. She invited us to her house for the interview. Her house was very interesting and decorated with artifacts from all her travels around the world. And I have to be honest, I was I was intimidated by her. I was. Yeah. <laughs> she was the first woman prosecutor in the state of Arkansas. Her entire resume is so impressive. And yeah, just to be sitting across the table from somebody who had done so many things. I think my favorite part of what when she went through and told us everything she had done and we asked how she got involved in that, how she got started. And she said, well, my husband said I need to get a job. So rather than just going and getting a job, she goes to law school and just blows everyone out of the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she didn't just get any old job. She uh, she made a name for herself. Yes, she did. 
a legacy for sure. Absolutely. My name is Betty Dickey. I am retired. I have had several jobs or professions that I've worked in over the years, starting with being a school teacher, city attorney, prosecuting attorney, public service commissioner, Arkansas Soil and Water Conservation Commission attorney, governor's chief attorney, the Supreme Court as chief justice and then as associate justice, private practice, more recently as coordinator of redistricting for the state of Arkansas. So to dive in to the Walls family history a little bit. In 1897, it was the early stages of the town of Lone Oak, A.J. Walls, who was Jack's great-grandfather, ran as an independent candidate for sheriff, and he was elected. He served as a sheriff and collector for six years, from 1898 to 1904, and then as a county judge from 1904 to 1914. A.J. Walls was married to Marianne Molly Robinson, who was a sister of Joe T. Robinson, a senator and one of Arkansas's political legends. This was the beginning of the political affiliation for the Walls family. A.J. Walls purchased 560 acres and constructed a house on the land which is now listed in the Arkansas Register of Historical Places because of its affiliation with the Walls, his children, and his grandchildren, who became noteworthy lawyers, judges, and politicians in Lono County. A.J. and Marianne had one daughter and one son, Charlotte Walls and Charles A. Walls, Jack's grandfather. There wasn't much information on the first Charles Walls available. However, we do know that he was a graduate of the University of Arkansas, after which he became an attorney and eventually became a senator. Charles married Annie, and they had Charles A. Walls II. Charles Walls II was a member of the OSS, which was a U.S. wartime intelligence agency and a precursor to the CIA. It was used to coordinate espionage activities behind enemy lines for all branches of the U.S. Armed Forces. He was a lawyer in Lone Oak County and was appointed special judge to serve on the Arkansas Supreme Court. He was also an attorney for the city of Carlisle, Arkansas. He was appointed circuit chancery judge for the 17th Judicial District by Governor Bill Clinton upon its creation in 1996. He also taught Sunday school at Lone Oak Baptist Church for 40 years and was a 32nd degree Mason. Finally, he served on the Lone Oak School Board for 25 years. This now brings us to Charles Walls III, better known as Jack Walls. Jack attended the University of Arkansas, but left after his sophomore year to enter the Army. He ended up going to Vietnam for one year and then served in the National Guard for 10 years. Interestingly enough, Heath's Aunt Bonnie actually dated Jack in high school, which paints the picture of how small the town really is. She gives fascinating insight into what Jack was like back then. I dated him a little bit in high school, which now makes me want to crawl away, but um, I did never see any, no. Uh, but I, th- I can go through the world and not see a whole lot of stuff, you know, just... I tend to be Pollyannish, and you're supposed to, if you're, if you're nice, you're nice all the way through until mm-hmm. you dump on me, and then you're not nice at all. 
He didn't really fit in the mold with everybody else. I don't know what, what your schools were like, but most, most schools, you know, people gather out around with people before school or whatever. And the people that, that he stood with, including me, were not the people that normally... They're not the gregarious, teacher-pet kind of... Not the... The yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I don't know... I don't know how to explain it. You know, whether there's the jocks and all those folks, and then there that are, quote, normal high school kids, and then there were people who were on the fringes. And Jack was on the fringe, and I was on the fringe, and I, I knew it. He just didn't fit with everybody else. He wasn't a football. Yeah, I guess he did play football. I don't know. He, but I did know that one Christmas I stayed home because mom and daddy would go to California to see relatives. And I stayed home because I had a date with Jack. That was part of it. And I think I had some other responsibilities, but I was really excited about that, you know. Mm. I think it was, like I said, I didn't date very much. And mm -hmm. to have a date with somebody was a big deal. <laughs> we went to a couple of proms together, but I, it wasn't like we were dating, you know, uh, in between. It was never a hot and heavy romance. Mm. We tried to go to a football game one time in... Little Rock, because uh, he was at the university and I was still in high school. And they asked me what courses I was taking. Well, I, I didn't know enough about college to make up any of lie. And he said, I don't, young lady, you're not a student. And so we had to turn around and go back. To some extent, to put me in the, that kind of situation was not even the best. Jack volunteered and was involved in the Boy Scouts, both before leaving for Vietnam and after returning. While he was in Vietnam, Jack was trained on tactics used on POWs, which included building up and breaking down a person's mind and will repeatedly. Shortly after returning, he became a scout leader and eventually became scoutmaster. He worked as a manager at Remington Arms, which is a firearms and ammunition manufacturer, giving him access to an arsenal of weapons. So let's talk about some of the tactics that Jack used. He would specifically target young boys who had learning disabilities and troubled home lives. And he would gain their trust by finding out different things that were missing in their lives, whether it be love and affection or confidence, among many other things. And he would become that thing for them. He would shower them with praise and compliments as well as gifts. And one thing about this is, you know, he befriended the families and those families would confide in him and, you know, he'd be friends with everyone. And the families would, would talk about, oh, you know, we're, we're struggling with our son because of this. And then he would take that information and add it to his collection. In addition to gaining the family's trust, Jack enticed the boys to come to his house by saying, I have all these guns, come over, I'll teach you to use them, which then evolved into full weapons training. To the boys, this was target practice, having fun, shooting guns. But Jack had a much more sinister plan for the small little militia that he was building. Jack would, would train them in guns. Now Jack worked at a gun factory, at a ammunition factory. He had access to a lot of ammunition. Uh, he would take that and he would take the boys out, which a young boy, you know, to shooting a gun, that's... They think that's something pretty special. And he would take them out, and that's how he would gain their their uh, their friendship, is by utilizing that gun shooting. 
the explosives I heard he would use to blow up beaver dams and 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 stuff like that. But that was just another way of gaining the respect and stuff and, and the scaring of these kids to show them what he could do. Another thing he would do is when the boys were talking to him and confiding in him different things, eventually he would use that information against them. And he would drive wedges between the boys and their families by telling them things like, your parents don't love you like I do. I'm the only one who loves you. And he would even relay stories to the families that, you know, weren't necessarily true that the boys had said or did. Um, And he really just kind of played puppet master in the whole situation. He would tell the parents one thing about the boys, and then he would tell the boys another thing about the parents to just continually make things worse when everyone else thought that his only goal was to make things better. So the entire time he was just pitting them against each other without them even realizing it. Yeah, he definitely capitalized on any crack that he saw in the family dynamic. And unbeknownst to them, he was just using that crack to wedge his way right in and destroy families. His nephew, Wade Knox, who, because of his treatment of him, he was sent to Little Rock for three or four years from age about 10 on uh, to live, drawing two sets of parents because he was afraid Jack was going to kill one of them, because Jack told him that. Um, he would break toys that belonged to Wade and leave them in, in Charlie Knox's front yard and tell Charlie that Wade had done it. And then he would tell Wade, I can control everything that happens to you. Just understand that. I can have your parents killed. Uh, I can I can show you how much, and they will believe me, not you. So he did that for years. He would sneak in Wade's room to rape him. These are stories that Wade told me. Uh, the depth of evil of that man, as I said, is almost unfathomable. And when Jack, Jack's sister-in-law, Karen, after all this came out, would ask him, Jack, why would you do that to even your own nephews? His answer? I like the outdoorsy type. That's what a sociopath, as, as he was described by the psychologist. We've read multiple statements from Jack's victims, and they all describe the same, the same patterns. During the campouts, Jack would give the boys wine, you know, alcohol, usually wine, which he would mix with uh, Coke and call it grape Coke. He would be right there to refill their cups. He'd give them a drink. Then he'd kind of go off and walk around the campsite, mingle a little bit. But he always kept his eye on the boys who had the alcohol, whose cup was empty. And he would be right there refilling it, just keeping that steady flow and making sure that they became intoxicated. The lost farm was going uh, the other direction, nine miles. So it was out that way, you had a lot of farms, fish farms. Um, and so it was out, you know, and it was isolated. 
It was out of city limits. It was isolated. And, you know, it used to be the family farm, but they eventually got out of farming. Well, unfortunately, it was isolated. So what Jack would do is he would have, you know, he would allow all these people to come out here. And, of course, he promoted himself as a specialist for troubled boys, that, you know, the Boy Scouts could offer the structure and the tools and all these things that we needed to develop. And he had the time and the and was willing to devote the time and effort to help shape us. Well, unfortunately for us, you know, they didn't know he was a pedophile. And when we got in the scouts, he would get us, you know, take us out there. And we did learn skills in, um, you know, how to survive in nature. And we learned all this stuff in the scouts. But at the same time, you know, we would have these campouts and Jack would start asking us questions. He asked us about home. And Jack went to school with most of our parents or was a little bit older and, you know, it was a small town. So he knew the family dynamics. So now we have this safe place where we can go and we share and other boys who talk about the problems they had at school. And he asked us about girls and asked us about school. And, you know, if, you know, and, then turn around and say, well, you know, I'm going to talk to your parents. You know, so it was, now we have an advocate and seeing this, this influence, it's positive. I didn't understand it then, but, you know, he would encourage us to all line up in line and see who could the fox. Well, I didn't know that he was checking us out. You know, I didn't, it didn't dawn on me at that age that he might be, you know, looking at our privacy. Uh, but, you know, and there were other things. He would encourage us to, you know, uh, compete against each other. You know, see if we set up a tent the fastest. Who could, um, you know, build a fire the fastest or, or cook the food and do, you know, it was always something positive, something that made you feel good about yourself. And, um, you know, and then, you know, after, after a while of sharing, then it was, you know, it seemed like, you had the regular scouts, and then you had Jack's voice. He would also tell them that what they were doing was natural. He told them that while he was in Vietnam, that he would be in a foxhole with his buddy, and they would take care of each other's needs, because that's what men do. And he would also tell them that men had to teach boys how to please their bodies. He would say things like, how will you ever please a woman if you don't know how to please yourself? And these are like nine and 10 year old boys. Mm -hmm. And they're just so unsure of everything. They're, nine and 10 year old boy isn't going to know what, what guys in Vietnam did in the foxholes. Right. And so they have Jack, who they trust, telling him this, telling them that. And, and they believed it. And in the beginning, it's like seemingly out of nowhere because, you know, the first time that this is happening for many of the boys, that's the last thing that's on their mind or it's never even been on their mind. Um, so they're just thinking it's cool that they're hanging out with their friends and laughing and drinking for the first time. And then all of a sudden now they're in this situation and being told that it's natural and normal and that this is how everybody learns. And now all of a sudden they're exposed to sexual images and, you know, now they're being told it's, it's natural for your body to react like this and here's what you do about it. We had talked about how 
these families are telling their their sons go to go with Jack. You know, he can help you. We all trust Jack. Everyone trusted Jack. And so you have these nine and 10 year old little boys that think my parents say this is right. My parents say go with Jack and trust Jack and do what Jack says. And Jack's telling them to do this stuff, drink alcohol, make Jack feel good. And they don't know any better. They have their parents encouraging this relationship with Jack. You know, his, their parents are saying, join the Boy Scouts, follow what Jack says. He's your mentor. Um, he's going to teach you things. And so they're, you know, in their minds probably thinking this is one of the things that he's supposed to teach me. Right. And when you have your parents telling you to go be with this person, you're nine, 10 years old. You don't know any better. You think, Milv, I guess this is normal. Jack had a tremendous amount of influence over them boys. He had a tremendous amount. He, when he befriended the families, he could say anything to them family, to the families, and the kids had nowhere to turn. They had to turn to Jack is the only place that they had to turn because they couldn't turn to their parents. Their parents thought that he was the greatest thing on the face of the earth. So he, he would... Uh, he would utilize that friendship with the families to get to the kids. They couldn't go to their parents and tell their parents. The parents wouldn't believe them. One of the gross things that has come up is that when he would, you know, tell the boys about the Vietnam stories and, and how they took care of each other, it's been said by many of the victims that he carried a little black, like the old film containers and little black plastic tube and he would fill it with Vaseline, and he always had it on him. So at any point, he was ready to go. Another thing is, is uh, during the campouts, he would have a woman come over and perform sex acts with the boys. He would utilize um, a prostitute. He used a pro well, I can't say she was a prostitute, but she came into the camp, and he would use her. Like an older woman that, that he had picked up at a particular location, and... And uh, it was the same woman, but the, they would bring her in. And these boys were about how old? 14, 15, somewhere in that area. If there was ever a time that that woman couldn't come for any reason, uh, Jack would blindfold the boys and he would put on a wig and perfume and he would pretend to be that woman. And then he would perform oral sex on the boys, one after the other. So they would call these Betty parties. Like you said, if Betty couldn't make it, Jack would just pretend to be Betty and they wouldn't know any different. You know, if you really think about it, like that woman, too. Besides the horror that is Jack for doing this, like what what woman could come over and just have sex with a bunch of young boys and just be okay with that? There was a wig that we found, too. It was found in the shed next to his house. Jack would wear that wig when he was assaulting the boys. He would put that wig on and pretend to be a female and, and perform his acts on the boys. To get the boys to stay quiet about the things that were happening to them, Jack would use his social status to intimidate them. He would say things like, look at you and look at me. You really think that anybody's going to believe you? 
He also had them dig their own graves and told them that if they ever spoke out about what was happening, they'd end up in those graves. It wasn't just rape. Rape was the sexual part of it. The other part of it was that Jack was programming them to kill for him. One killed himself. One was charged with killing his his family. Um, some of the others were convicted of, of other lesser crimes. Um, I think the judge commented that he felt what, in retrospect, what Jack had done to them had, uh, he, because he taught them how to avoid uh, sensor lights to, to uh, stalk, uh, and I think in his evil mind to kill. Um, and uh, he su supplied them with ammunition, taught them how to shoot, um, told them if they had a problem to fix it, and if they couldn't fix it, to kill it. So this next part is going to be pretty hard, um, but we are going to read portions from some of the victims' statements that they made to police. We have changed their names to protect their identities. This first statement is from a boy we will call Neil. He wrote a letter confessing to his dad what Jack had done to him. Here's what he writes. Jack messed with me. He played with me, and he made me play with him. He has done this for a long time, and I don't remember when the first time was. You know there were many times that Jack would come over, and I would tell you to tell him that I wasn't there, or I would make up an excuse not to go to his farm. He would give me alcohol, and I would smoke dope and cigarettes in front of him, which is why I looked up to him. He was an adult, and he let me do those things. I really hope that you don't look at me differently because of this. This has been inside of me for a long time, and I have learned to forget, forget it. Sometimes it comes back to me. I love you all very much. Please don't think of me no other way. Love your son, Neil. P.S. I was there when he messed with Wade Knox and Heath Stocks. I know all of the stuff that they've said about him is true. In Neil's statement to police, he mentioned what they referred to as Betty parties, which was where an older woman would come to the campouts and perform sex acts with the young boys. He also states that he witnessed Jack performing oral sex on many of the others in the group, including Heath Stocks. During one campout, Jack took him and others into a tent and had them perform acts on each other. The next statement is from a victim that we will call Carl. So Carl says, In the summer of 8th or ninth grade, Jack called him and asked him to come over. When he did, Jack gave him wine, a magazine to look at, and proceeded to have oral sex with him. Jack also gave him books to read, with titles such as The Scoutmaster's Wife, The Boy Scout's Mother, and The Hungry Sister. As time progressed, Jack had anal sex with him and at one time performed oral sex on him and another boy in a tent at a Boy Scout campout, while other boys were outside. The boy stated, Jack is a violent person, and I'm afraid of what he will do to me. Several of the books that he had given focused on incest, 
And that's something that Jack pushed on the boys as well. Yeah, he really wanted them to have sex with their sisters. He encouraged it. One of his favorite forms of pornography was of incest. He liked the Taboo series of porn where it was, you know, brother and sister and cousins. And, you know, my sister used to spend the night with his daughter all the time. And I always feared that he would have the boys using her that same way. He said, Heather sure is developing nicer. Heather sure is, uh, you sure you don't want to, you know, uh, try to, you know, see if she'd be interested or, you know, I can have somebody else come over to the house. And, you know, and so there was always this, you know, uh, insinuation. And he would also talk to the boys about the local girls in the town. And it was almost like he had a running list of, like, who would be easy to get into bed. And then he would want the boys to come back and share the share the details of what they had done with the different girls. And another thing was he pushed for them to bring girls back to the group so they could share. And that's something that many of the boys have said. Once they found a girl that they thought was easy, that Jack sent them in the direction of, Try to bring her back here so we can all have fun with her. Mm-hmm. Almost like they were trying to find another Betty. The next statement is from a boy that we will call Tony. Jack told Tony that his wife would be out of town and to come over once his parents were asleep. He said that he would leave the door unlocked and to just come in. When Tony arrived, Jack was on the phone, but he fixed him a drink of Jack and Coke and told him to go look at the guns until he was finished. Once he was off the phone, he put in a pornographic tape and told him to take off all of his clothes. He performed oral sex on Tony and then forced him to masturbate him. He was there for 30 minutes at the most, and then Jack sent him on his way back home. In a future episode, we're going to be discussing the decade-long abuse that Heath Stocks endured from Jack. However, we did want to include a statement that he made to police at the same time frame as these other boys. Heath states that he was around 10 years old the first time it happened. And it was a couple years after he first met Jack. Jack gave him alcohol and he forced him to perform oral sex on Jack by grabbing his head and pushing it down on him. Afterwards, when Heath joined the rest of the boys, they knew what had happened and said, welcome to the group. As time went on, Jack would encourage the boys to do things with each other, including group masturbation. This next statement is from Wade Knox, and we're using his real name because he was instrumental in a future episode. In an interview with Wade, he states, There's a bookshelf in the back of Jack's shop, which was connected to his house, and Jack had told him to go back there and he'd find a Playboy magazine and to check it out. He then came over and started fondling him, and then he pulled out a tape measure and measured the size of his penis. That right there is something also that many of the boys said. So it was almost like Jack had a growth chart. That he would kind of mark on the wall um, the, the lengths or sizes of each of the boys. We also came across a statement that Wade's widow left as a comment on a public forum. She's telling about a story that Wade told her about a time when Jack had 
instructed Wade to bring him a little boy from the neighborhood. Wade didn't want to be responsible for bringing a new boy to Jack. So instead of following Jack's instructions, Wade told the boy to stay away from Jack. He said, don't trust him, don't join the scouts. And he also said, if you ever do, I'll hurt you. And it was really, you know, just a way to protect him, try to protect one more boy. And Jack had so much control over Wade that even though he did go against him, he still felt really bad about it and, you know, felt like he had betrayed Jack. So he came clean to Jack and told him everything that he had said to the boy. And so Jack's response was that Wade had to be punished. And this is what his widow writes about in the comment. Wade was to lose an eye for his betrayal. Wade was given a small bag that had things in it to start a fire and tools. He was taken to a location and he built a fire ring and then was told to come back there on a specific day. The bag had tools and a large nail in it. He was told to ride his bike there and then build a fire and in the fire he was to place the nail. Jack told him that he was to put the nail in the fire and lay on the ground and wait. Jack came along later and used the tools to pick up the nail from the fire, and he reminded Wade that if he cried while the nail was inserted into his eye, his little sister would be killed. Wade laid motionless as Jack smiled and lifted the nail and inserted it into Wade's eye. Wade had to ride his bike home and tell his parents that he was dragging a board with a nail in it and it flew up and hit him in the eye. Wade was now blind in one eye and had to have surgery to fix the mangled eye that Jack inserted a nail into. Not one person doubted Wade's story. No one said this makes no sense. So that's really horrific, obviously, to do to any anyone. But Wade was also Jack's nephew. And lived right next door. How horrific. And, you know, it just really shows how Jack maintained his control over these boys. Absolutely, with complete fear. Because, you know, Wade protected that boy. And didn't get him, told him, stay away from scouts, you know, don't don't come near Jack. But the control that Jack had over him made him feel then he had to go confess to Jack and told Jack exactly what he did. The depth of evil in that man I haven't seen in prosecution or heard of in other people. There are very few people who are so evil and... Um, and have the ability to, to twist for evil purposes, young minds. Uh, it, it was uh, almost unfathomable then, and especially the magnitude of, of, of the um, violations against young kids. In the next episode, 
we will be talking about an opportunity that presented itself to put an end to Jack's reign of terror. What happens when one brave boy says no? How will the extensive weapon training that Jack put the boys through come into play? Will Jack's threats that no one would believe the boys about the abuse hold true? And how far does Jack's control reach? And who, if anyone, is willing to stand up for him? Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case, never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.